This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Robots Radio presents... In 1968, director Stanley Kubrick mystified the masses with his seminal sci-fi masterpiece. In 2020, we return to the Isle of Scotland to visit a familiar friend. The film is 2001, A Space Odyssey. The whiskey is Glenn Morangy, Quinta Rubin, 14. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1968 sci-fi classic, 2001, A Space Odyssey. And we're joined this week by one of our favorite guest hosts. We've got Jordan McCain in studio with us today. Jordan, how's it going, man? I am extremely nervous. Uh Uh-oh. Well, guys, maybe we should... uh... Maybe we should get all our cards out on the table up front. In the history of the Film and Whiskey podcast, Brad has explained this many times to our listeners. I basically put this list together. I have dictated what movies we would watch on the Film and Whiskey podcast. And so most of the movies have been movies that I like. However, I am in a very small minority of people who have never been able to get behind the film 2001 A Space Odyssey. It just continues to baffle me and anger me and frustrate me. Every time I watch it. And it's a movie that is considered, you know, by many, one of the top five films ever made. And guys, I have to be honest with you. I just don't really like this movie. Yeah, Bob, I'm right there with you. This is a very interesting movie, to say the least. But as I was getting through it, like, I did have the sense going into it, like, Brad, you better get ready because this is an art house film. So, like, going into it, I kind of knew what I was getting into, so I think that helped me uh, withstand some of the stranger things that happen in this movie, but I, I'm going to agree with you, Bob. This is a difficult movie to get through. Yeah, and, and the, you know, the funny thing is, you, you call it an art house movie, and I understand why you're saying that, because it really is this sort of, like, abstract, hard-to-grasp movie, but... It's not like art house in the sense of it being low budget and obscure. This was a a big budget movie produced by a huge movie studio, MGM, featuring a director who had had commercial success, who was one of the more well-known directors in Hollywood at the time, Stanley Kubrick. And like th- this movie was a big risk for the studio to take. And it wasn't like it was just this movie that they released with no fanfare. It was a big release for this studio. Bob, I don't think you understand Art House. Art House isn't about the money. <laughs> it's about the lifestyle, okay? You know, you might you might actually be uh, foreshadowing a lot of our conversation here today, Brad, because the frustrating thing about 2001 for me is the more I try to find people defending it and explaining why it's a great movie, the more I find people really taking a super pretentious attitude about this movie. I think the the frustrating thing with this movie is its fans. 
Because even those who say things like, I understand why people find this movie boring, they have an implicit sort of way of arguing, which is, well, but this movie's not supposed to be entertaining. If you're able to just shut off that part of your mind and enter into the philosophy behind the movie, and it always assumes that, like, as a viewer, you're missing something, you're not understanding something, and it's their job to explain to you that it's a fault in you and not a fault in the movie. And this movie is one that I keep going back to as an argument that, yes, you can understand exactly what was intended by a movie, or at least have a valid interpretation of the movie, and just not like it, and that's okay. And I think 2001 fans can't put those two things together. Yeah, you guys are skyrocketing my anxiety, because this is exactly why I I have studied films at least a little bit. And the, one of the first things you come across is the divisive nature of this movie, how big it was leading up to it, how people looked forward to the premiere, how in a, in a lot of ways, and I know we'll talk about this, but in terms of special effects and things like that, it was pretty stunning for the time period. But then to also read the contemporary reviews of people, like very famous people who just walked out of the film, they're just like, this movie is boring and I don't get it. Some of them being major movie stars. I just am so fascinated by the way that culture or different cultures or different groups of people have picked up this film and heralded it in different ways. And I've seen how rabid, uh, rabid's not the right word, but rabid the fan base could be when you begin to critique it, like the number of movies, the number of articles, the number of documentaries that are just about this film. It's pretty astonishing to me personally. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Jordan. And we probably shouldn't go any further without getting into our favorite segment, which is called Brad Explains. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to Brad's explanation of this movie because this is going to be a hard one to pin down. Brad, will you explain to our listeners, who many of whom probably haven't seen this film, the plot of 2001? Bob, I'd love to. Uh, I think what I'm going to do for this movie is I'm going to break it up into three parts. So the first part of this movie opens, and the title card is The Dawn of Man. And you see these early ape people that are more monkey than not, but, you know, it's pretty obvious that they're actors. Um, so they definitely have some human-like features. And it shows them kind of, you know, scrabbling by an a existence in prehistoric humanity. And the the defining feature of that scene is when they find a foreign object. You know, it's very clearly not a natural object, and it's this large black monolithic stone that you see them kind of go up to curiously like an animal would, and they finally touch it. And it seems to lead to them having some sort of knowledge of how to use weapons. Um, in the scene following that, you see, you know, the main leader of the monkeys he takes a big femur bone of an animal and starts hitting other things with it. And that's that. They, you see them kind of fight and slowly start to gain dominance because of this object that they interacted with. Uh, it then moves way, 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 way into the future, and you see a scientist flying on a space shuttle up to the moon. Through a few small conversations, you find out that the Earth has delved deeply into space travel, that we have colonies on the moon, and that he is traveling to a specific American colony that has gone dark over the past month or so. 
And when he arrives at the space colony, lo and behold, up there on the moon, they have uncovered another black monolithic stone that is exactly like the one that they found in the Dawn of Man. And thus ends the first third of the movie. The second third of the movie is spent uh, with the crew of the ship Odyssey. They are traveling to Jupiter uh, and they are accompanied by a computer system called HAL 9000. And in this segment of the movie, you have a deep sense of unease as you feel like there's more to the story that's being told, that HAL 9000 has a darker, more ominous purpose. And throughout this part of the film, you slowly realize that HAL thinks himself to be uh, much smarter, much more intelligent, and that he doesn't need the humans to complete you know, the mission that he's been sent on. And so HAL 9000 kills four out of five members of the crew. And the final member of the crew, Dave, Dr. Dave Bowman, he is able to shut HAL 9000 down. And he learns that they had found this alien object on the moon and that the alien object sent a radio signal to Jupiter and that that is why he's being sent to Jupiter. And thus ends the second third of the movie. And then in the final third of the movie, which is probably about 30 minutes long, uh, you get beyond Jupiter and into the infinite masses. And at this point, the, the movie goes full art house. You are treated to all sorts of almost kaleidoscopic space travel montages. Uh, you see a lot of different landscapes and almost like film negative colors. And then you have an ending scene that I don't even know how to describe, but you see the main character, Dave Bowman, get older and older and older, and eventually he turns into a space baby. And that is the story of 2001 A Space Odyssey. You know, the really funny thing about it is that, Brad, it's not like you were describing things in a facetious way. Like, the way this movie ends is with a giant fetus in utero floating through space overlooking the Earth. And there is no explanation for it. You're just looking at a giant space baby. Yeah, I, I honestly tried to keep that as concise as possible. But, like, that's the movie. I, I don't really know what to do with it. The the three parts of the movie, they kind of make sense together. But the third part just gets very trippy very quickly. All right. So, guys, we'll put off talking about the really trippy elements of the movie and our analysis of it until later. But I want to focus on some of the technical aspects of the movie. And there's a lot to dive into here, because as Jordan mentioned, the special effects work is next level. I mean, you can really see how the original Star Wars trilogy was influenced by the miniatures in this movie. But we'll get into that in a second. I want to focus on Stanley Kubrick. And Kubrick is, I mean, what more can be said about him? He is the, you know, snobby cinephile's favorite director. This is a guy whose every directorial decision has had theses and dissertations written about it. There are people who think that this guy thought out everything, you know, from what the certain colors on a carpet in The Shining signified. So we're talking about a person who was super meticulous with everything that he put on screen. And so for me, when I was really frustrated with the movie... It's not because I can blame Kubrick for leaving things out. And if he did leave things out, it's that they were intentional. I want to get your guys' thoughts on Kubrick as a director in this movie, some of the things that he did maybe with his camera work and decisions that he made that you guys noticed as you watched the movie. 
Bob, you forgot to ask me an important question earlier about whether or not I have seen this movie before. And I just want to let you know right now, I had not seen 2001 A Space Odyssey before. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know if I've ever seen a Stanley Kubrick film before. Yeah, this is the first Kubrick movie we've watched on the podcast, and I'm sure we'll get in some more. You know, Paths of Glory is a masterpiece in my mind. He did Dr. Strangelove. He did A Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket. Some people will remember Eyes Wide Shut from the late 90s. He is a master and a titan of cinema, so we're definitely going to get into watching more Kubrick as we go. Bob, with how much we've been talking about, like, Stanley Kubrick snobs, I feel like I'm saying his name wrong. Like, I feel like we're going to get angry letters written to us about how it's supposed to be pronounced like Kubrick or something. You know what's really funny is I heard you say Kubrick. I've always said Kubrick. And I I didn't listen to any like audio samples where he says his own name because we're not the only ones who make that distinction. So maybe we need to do like a Twitter poll. Is it Kubrick or is it Kubrick? And we'll just go with whatever the general population says. Yeah, I just feel like either way I'm in the wrong. That's that's usually true. Yeah, but as far as 2001 goes, I think that what I noticed most about Kubrick as a director is that he is, I mean, I mean, you use the word already, he is meticulous about every single shot in this movie, about every single actor that walks on stage. The way that they deliver their lines is always measured. It's always controlled. I mean, this movie is one of the most painstakingly crafted films I've ever seen. And I'm going to be honest with you, my emphasis there is on the word pain. This movie is painfully slow at so many points of the film. It's difficult to get through, even with how beautifully done it is. Yeah, I don't consider myself a man of high taste. I'm from central Indiana and I uh <laughs> wow, way to, way to put down your whole region there, dude. <laughs> but I mean it. I really do. I am alluding to the reality of just like I'm a Midwestern guy who's been exposed to a lot of different kinds of art and different forms of culture that I normally wouldn't have just because of my life experience, but I do still even though I try to appreciate moments like 2001 A Space Odyssey and the way that art like this is crafted, I do find that even in the minutia of all the details of like, like what you were saying, well, the Shining's carpet is this color because he was thinking about this. That just ends up being, for me, it just feels like a lot of trivia uh, that you just kind of learn about. And I don't, I go, oh, cool. That's pretty neat. But other than that, it doesn't necessarily do a lot more for me. I struggle with movies like that. A Tree of Life felt very similar for me, which I know you guys reviewed earlier in the year, uh, but I, I just don't always get it. I'm like, oh, cool. Uh, it's space and dinosaurs. That's a, that's a neat thing right there. I like that. I am really glad that you're mentioning The Tree of Life, though, because I, I think that at some point it was going to be inevitable for us to have to compare the two. I think when we did the Tree of Life podcast, Brad, if I'm not mistaken, we mentioned 2001 at some point and said that that was probably the closest thing I could think of to what the Tree of Life was trying to do. And watching back 2001 now, it's it's less abstract than the Tree of Life, but it's equally lean on plot, if that makes sense. I don't know, Brad, what are your initial impressions just comparing this to the Tree of Life? Honestly, I think that the big thing about this movie is that you definitely see the 1950s and 60s, you know, fears about the world coming up in the philosophy of the movie, I suppose. 
Tree of Life is much more interested in telling the story of an individual of one man's search for purpose in the world, which feels much more like a postmodern, you know, take on things. Whereas Kubrick, while I would I would describe a lot of his the final third of the movie as very postmodern, I think that the the questions that he's dealing with are on more of a scale of what will humanity do when, you know, artificial intelligence outpaces us? Uh, What are we going to do when we find alien life forms somewhere? So I think that the philosophical questions that the movies are asking are very different. And so it does kind of lean me in a a way of saying that they do come across as very different movies to me, even though they have some stylistic similarities. Well, and they're two different genres too, right? Like science fiction, though at the time in movies wasn't nearly as well defined until after 2001 A Space Odyssey, which it seems like in terms of history really opened the door for people to write more stories like this. The predominant themes of science fiction is like cynicism, apocalyptic, you know, uh, worldviews, a view of humanity that's very bleak. And I would say in terms of theme too, even if stylistically they're really similar, I will say at least about the Tree of Life, it seems a lot more optimistic about the eventual outcome of what humans are going to be able to do or what they're going to be able to achieve. And 2001 does not seem that way at all. All right. So I want to take a step into the technical side of the movie. And one thing that I really noticed was how predictive this movie was of how technology was going to develop over the course of the next 50 years. Because, you know, for the most part, there are a couple things in this movie that I would consider dated. But for the most part, a lot of this is still very easily digestible for audiences in 2019 in terms of the way they use their technology and equipment. And when you think about the fact that none of this equipment or technology actually existed in 1968 and Kubrick was basically just making it all up, it's kind of incredible to think about the way that our, you know, our smartphones and our tablets and our touchscreens have all evolved in a way that kind of mirrors what we're seeing in the movie 2001. Did you guys pick up on some of that? Yeah, Bob, I really did. I I don't know if this is reductionistic to say, but I feel like this is a theory I've had for a long time. And so it's one of those things where I go, was it Stanley Kubrick's imagination that really brought us some of the modern amenities that we have? Because if the people who watched this movie growing up as kids became scientists, became researchers, became the people who were making stuff up, well... They already have in their imagination what they think the future is going to be like. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, is it just that Stanley Kubrick predicted things or were people so influenced by this movie that they purposely designed them to look like 2001? And I do think in either case, though, it says a lot about the influence of this movie as opposed to any other science fiction, you know, vision of the universe. We did not get a future that looks like the Jetsons. We got a future that looks like 2001. And This movie went a long way towards kind of legitimizing the genre of sci-fi for film. You know, before this, it was really just kind of this escapist adventure, alien stories, kind of cartoony in in the way that they were portrayed. This is one of the very first movies where you that I think you could call like hard sci-fi. And Brad, I know you're a big fan of science fiction. 
Could you tell as you were watching it that this was like a milestone movie? Yeah, this movie is a game changer. You know, you see its influence in so many things, the most obvious being Star Wars. Like you said, the miniatures that were made for this movie, you know, for the shots of the spacecraft in space, that was just clearly influential on what Star Wars would become. And honestly, as we're talking about Star Wars, like, it makes sense to me why Star Wars exploded in popularity if you had something like this to kind of prep the audience, you know, the audiences of America for a movie like Star Wars. Because Star Wars has, you know, it has plot, it has action, it has movement. And so it makes sense to me that if you took the elements of 2001 that made it popular, you know, the the, the special effects and the models – And the idea that there's more going on in space than we thought there was, you know, you take all of those core things and then you add action and plot and likable characters onto it. It makes sense that Star Wars was a blockbuster smash hit. I think one thing I was thinking about during the film that just really impressed me, and it always impresses me with older films, though I'm not nearly as acquainted with films made before the 80s than either of you guys are now. Uh, I just, it's a simple thought experiment, but when you watch 2001 A Space Odyssey and these four guys are walking on the moon, it really looks like they're walking on the moon, which we're kind of spoiled because we have lived in a world predominantly of CGI where it's like to walk on the moon doesn't feel like that big a deal. But if the three of us with our resources were to say, let's make it look like three people are walking on the moon, but you can't use CGI and you can't be on the moon. You have to really make it look like they are. I find that to be incredible that people did that with just traditional sets. And so I don't know how he did it, but I just I do think that's incredible. Well, and not only that, but you factor in that this movie was actually made and released before humanity ever actually landed on the moon. (laughs) And so much of it holds up. Like he was consulting with people like Carl Sagan on, you know, how the physics of this kind of stuff would work in space. And even for somebody as intelligent and brilliant as Carl Sagan, like we had only really been doing tests in space up to this point. We hadn't sent Apollo 11, you know, to the moon yet. And so it was kind of anybody's guess how a lot of this stuff would work. And Kubrick has crafted a movie that the physics of it still seem pretty sound even 50 years later. Well, I think that the physics of it makes sense because they probably used the same stage when they, you know, made the moon landing, you know, a few years later. (laughs) Well, and that's I mean, that's how this movie got embroiled in that conspiracy theory. Like Stanley Kubrick invented the moon landing because it was so convincing in 2001. Yeah, I, I don't want anybody out there to think that I'm a conspiracy theorist. I do think that we actually landed on the moon. (laughs) But if we didn't, Stanley Kubrick was definitely involved. (laughs) When we first found it, we thought it might be an upcrop of magnetic rock. But all the geological evidence was against it. And not even a big nickel-iron meteorite could produce a field as intense as this. So we decided to have a look. We thought it might be the upper part of some buried structure, so we excavated out on all sides. But unfortunately, we didn't find anything else. And what's more, the evidence seems pretty conclusive that... It hasn't been covered up by natural erosion or other forces. It seems to have been deliberately buried. Deliberately buried. Deliberately buried. (laughs) Well, how about a little coffee? Wish the hell we did. (laughs) I don't suppose you have any idea what the damn thing is, huh? (laughs) Deliberately buried. (laughs) 
No, the only thing we're sure of is it was buried four million years ago. Deliberately buried. <laughs> Deliberately buried. A couple other things I want to point out before we go to our break, and and they're they're about Kubrick's filmmaking here. I love the way that he frames a lot of things, and the camera work in this movie is just absolutely gorgeous. I I was thrown off sometimes by the huge steady cam or or stationary like vistas we get, and then cutting to the handheld. That was a little weird. It had that documentary feel to parts of it, but there's a scene where. Uh, Dr. Poole comes out of the pod before Hal turns the pod on him and kills him. You see that Dr. Poole is getting ready to like exit his pod, and then we cut to the inside of the ship where Dave Bowman is watching him. And then we get this incredible shot that's like, from Bowman's point of view, you see that he's been watching a monitor. And you only see what's happening outside through this like security monitor. And so first of all, super ahead of his time just in depicting security monitors, but secondly... Kubrick is directing all of our attention to like this one small part of the screen and showing us really important like narrative information that we have to watch through basically security cam footage. And I was just I'm watching scenes like this play out and nobody at this time is making directorial decisions like that. And I'm I'm thinking to myself, even as a guy who doesn't really care for this movie, that the filmmaking of this film, it's 40 years ahead of its time. Yeah, and one thing that I really noticed was that in a movie that is, like you said earlier, Bob, it is very lean on the plot part of a film. One thing that I liked is that he showed you a lot of the technology without ever having dialogue that had to explain it. You know, you didn't get somebody saying, oh, well, we've reverse engineered gravity, so now we can do this thing in outer space. You just get a shot of the main cabin in the Odyssey, you know, and you see the guy running around it and you kind of understand that, hey, they're able to do this thing. Or I I don't know if you guys like this or not, but when the they first go to the trip to the moon and they show the stewardess bringing him, you know, some food or a pen or whatever, and they zoom in on her feet as she walks by and it says, you know, like no slip shoes or, you know, whatever it says mm-hmm. about them sticking. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that was a really cool shot to show like how they're able to walk with zero gravity. There's no dialogue. You don't have to explain it. You just saw one quick shot and now you know what's going on. I, I love the way he explains technology in this movie without dialogue. Yeah, the setup for all the space stuff is it really is mind blowing. The attention to detail is crazy. And even like if you notice on the side of the ship that's going to the moon, it says Pan Am. Kubrick even predicted that we would be branding things in space. And it's not heavily leaned into. No one's talking about like, welcome aboard Pan American Airlines. Like there's no huge sales pitch or anything like that. It's just to the characters in the movie, it's blasé. It's like, yeah, of course, Pan Am owns this space shuttle that's taking me to the moon. And for him to just kind of add that bit of texture into those scenes that are introducing us to space, it really does make it feel like a lived in world. All right. Well, guys, we've talked a lot about the technical aspects of this movie. I want to take a break and drink some whiskey so that we can get ourselves in a position to talk about the insanity that is the abstract ending of this film. So what do you say we hit pause here and we try this Glenn Morangy Quinta Rubin 14? Bob, I'm so excited for this. I can't wait, man.
right, so today we are checking out Glenn Morangy Quinta Rubin 14. Now, last season, if you remember, Brad and I worked our way through a sampler of Glenn Morangy scotches, which was still probably the best value we've ever gotten in terms of a product because it gave us four different weeks worth of whiskey and it was only 25 bucks. And our favorite whiskey out of that sampler, and what ended up being our number one whiskey of season one, was their Quinta Rubin. And that was a 12-year scotch that was actually a port cask finish. And we really loved the 12-year. Brad happened to find a bottle of the next expression of it, which is it's the same whiskey, but it's a 14-year whiskey. And we figured we owed it to Film and Whiskey Nation to give this a try and see if it's as good as that wonderful, wonderful Quinta Rubin 12-year. Yeah, you you start drinking stuff like this, and you begin to understand why people describe scotch as the nectar of the gods. Yeah, this is not a peated scotch, uh, and I think a lot of people who really go in on single malt scotches would probably look down on something like Glenmorangie. I just feel like there's probably some snootiness involved with the way people approach a whiskey like this. But for scotch novices like Brad and me, this was, to my uneducated palate, like the best scotch I had ever had at the time. Uh, what are you picking up on the nose of this Glenmorangie Quinta Rubin? Perfection. Yeah, I actually poured mine out a few minutes ago, and I have really, really been waiting patiently to try some of this. But when I first poured it, I noticed a lot of uh, like orange peel, a lot of citrus. It almost smelled kind of like a mandarin orange. And that was something I don't remember getting on the Quinta Rubin 12. But the longer that it sat and kind of mellowed, it just took on those really classic scotch smells. It's not smoky because it's not peated, but there's a lot of butterscotch on this. And as it sat, it actually developed kind of a caramely smell to it, which I love because it, it's telling me this is probably going to be a little sweeter. And it, it's just I, I can't wait to try it, Brad. I think if I had to give this nose a score, I'd give it a at least an eight. I'm going to go with an eight. Yeah, I'm going to give it an eight as well. I love the nose on this whiskey. I think that, like you said, there's some caramely butterscotch type notes. I think I just get barely a hint of something floral from it. The, you know, it's kind of bright and promising. I really love the nose on this whiskey. All right. Well, the moment of truth has come. Let's give it a sip. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is really sweet. I like it a lot. It's it's butterscotchy. There's a slight burn. Like the alcohol is definitely present, but not overpowering. When you kind of kick it to the back of your palate, I got quite a bit of fruit. I don't know if I could necessarily describe what specific fruit it is. It's definitely a little citrusy, but it never loses those great butterscotch sweet tones all the way through. It's almost like toffee. It's It's really, really wonderful. I think what I love about this whiskey so much is that it takes the brightness of an Irish whiskey and it gives it a little bit of extra viscosity. You know, like when it first touched my lips, it almost had this like honey quality to it that was partnered by a fascinating palate. I mean, you just have a lot going on. It's nice and sweet, but you also have notes of salt and flowers. I, I really like this whiskey. I'm going to give it a nine on the taste. I'm going to give it a nine as well, you know, and I don't want to get too far ahead into the finish, but on the very end of the taste, as you get into the finish, it, it really does kind of present some of those woody notes from the barrel. It's it's a little dry, but it's not overwhelmingly bitter. And I really like that it takes you from that very, very sweet note up front all the way to getting some of those woodier notes on the back. It's a really smooth transition. I think if I had to give the finish a score, 
to couple my nine with the taste, it would be an eight and a half on the finish. I think it's really velvety. It's not overpowering. It's not super bitter. It doesn't last a long, long time, but it, it, it does have a lasting impression. So I'm going to go eight and a half on the finish. Yeah, I'm actually going to go nine and a half on the finish. I love the oakiness paired with the floral notes that I'm getting on the finish. It's smooth. I, you use the best word, Bob. It's velvety. I really like this finish. Uh, Jordan, I'm kind of curious to hear what you're thinking about the whiskey so far. Well, you know, I've only tried a few whiskeys with you guys in this setting, but I would appreciate many of the same things you did. I could smell the citrus. I could definitely taste the caramel and the butterscotch. I really like this a lot better probably than any of the other whiskeys that I've had the chance to try with y'all. And I would say it's way better than that IPA whiskey that we tried when we did Birdman. (laughs) I like this quite a bit more. All right, so that brings us to overall balance. Now, this is nose, taste, finish, all put together. This is an incredibly well-balanced whiskey. I'm going to give it a nine. The only thing that I really regret about this whiskey is that we don't have the 12-year to pair it up next to because I want to be able to tell if it does have a little bit more character to it. But even just by itself, it's a no-brainer that this is a nine out of 10 for me on balance. Yeah, I'm actually going to go the full distance and say that this is a 10 out of 10 on balance for me. I I don't know if I've seen a whiskey that moves from nose to palate to finish so well. I mean, the things that I expect, I get. It's smooth. it, It works so well. I love this whiskey. So I actually did a little bit of digging and found out that the Quinta Rubin 14 year has actually replaced the 12 year in Glen Morangy's lineup. It is no longer a 12 and a 14. They're calling it the extra matured collection now. So I believe the La Santa and the Nectar Door also have a, a higher age statement now. But this is really good news because I was looking up Quinta Rubin on the Ohio Liquor website. You guys know that we're located here in Ohio. And in the state of Ohio... A fifth of Glenmorangy Quinta Rubin 14 will set you back $49.99. So only $50 for this. I was expecting quite a bit more, and I was also expecting to have to track down, you know, a, a, a higher price point on this for a 14-year. But no, it's the same price it was before, and you're getting two more years of aging out of it now. Brad, it's pretty rare for me to do this, but I think it's a no-brainer. This is a 10 out of 10 on value. Yeah, it's obvious. I mean, if you want a well-balanced, tasteful scotch that's just going to knock your socks off every time, and then you told me that I'm going to pay $50 for it, that is a deal beyond deals. You know, and unfortunately, we are basing this off of other scotches, not whiskey in general. Now, would I pay this if you called this a bourbon? Sure. Like it's still a really good whiskey all around. But, you know, bourbons are going to cost less. For scotch being $50, man, this is a great deal. Glenn Morangy says that the extra two years of aging uh, bring out deeper flavors, this is their quote, of orange and dark chocolate for a bolder, velvety whiskey. I'm actually really glad that some of those notes came out on our tasting. I wasn't expecting to see them say that it brings out orange, and we definitely picked up orange, and we both used the word velvety to describe it. So I'm really... I'm really pleasantly surprised that we were picking up what they intended us to pick up on it on our palates. I cannot recommend this whiskey highly enough. It's going to bring me out to a 44 and a half out of 50. Brad, what's your final score on this? I'm too higher than you. I'm at a 46.5. So we are at a 45 and a half or a 91 out of 100. This is our new high score in the history of the Film and Whiskey podcast. 
Bob, I have been looking forward to this day for so long. You know, I, I opened this bottle a while back and shared it with a friend, and I was just blown away with how good it is. And I'm I'm very sad to tell you that I'm close to the end of the bottle. I probably only have two glasses of it left. But honestly, this is one of those rare instances where I will probably go out on my own and buy another bottle of it. I, I can't not have it on my shelf. The thing I love about this is that it's not a super challenging whiskey. Like, it's not... I'm not going to reach for something like this if I want a barrel-proof bourbon. You know, on nights where I want barrel-proof, I want something that I'm going to have to sip really slowly that's going to fight back a little bit. This is kind of an easy sipper. It's something I could drink. You know, I drank it while watching 2001 last night. And at the same time, I think it's incredibly well-balanced. There is some alcohol present. It's not like it's watery. This isn't just an 80-proof whiskey. This is something that has a a really full-bodied palate to it. You do get the alcohol on it, and it's just a rewarding experience no matter what kind of whiskey drinking mood you're in. Yeah, I mean, this Quinta Rubin clocks in at 92 proof. It's that perfect balance of the Kentucky hug and flavor that you would expect from a high-end scotch. And like we said, you only got to pay 50 bucks for it. So, Bob, as much as I think we could continue talking about Quinta Rubin for the rest of the night— we probably owe it to our listeners to get back into Kubrick's masterpiece. Let's keep talking about 2001. All right, so that was Glenn Morangy, Quinta Rubin, 14, our new high score in the history of the Film and Whiskey podcast. But it's time for us to get back into talking about 2001. And Brad, this is a movie that starts out with people in ape outfits and doesn't have doesn't spend a lot of time with its human characters. There's really only a few individuals in this movie that have dialogue. But I think we would be remiss to not talk about the characters in this film Did you find any of the performances compelling, Brad, and would you call any of them out individually? Yeah, Bob, I I really, out of all the performances in this movie, I really loved Keir DeLay as Dave Bowman. I, I think he just had a presence about him that simultaneously felt somewhat cold and calm and collected, and yet he was able to convey an intensity with his eyes with the way he moves on screen. I really enjoyed him a lot. You know, what what did you guys think about him? You know, this is maybe the only thing that Kubrick intended for us to get that I really feel like I got was I did not find anything exceptional necessarily about any of the human actors or the characters that they portrayed. If you had told me that one of those two doctors, Bowman or Poole, was the same doctor in the middle of the movie. I would have believed you because I could barely tell them apart in terms of just how they acted or their mannerisms. But it was so obvious that the star of the show is Hal, the AI. Uh, he, with a monotone voice, seems to elicit more emotion and express more feeling than any of the other characters combined. I just was kind of blown away by that. And I, That's something that I would guess was intentional for the film. I think that is a really good observation, Jordan. Kubrick was known for being the kind of director who would do 50, 60, 70 takes of something uh, until it got 
absolutely perfect in his eyes. So the performances in this movie are definitely intentionally put that way by Kubrick. And I think you're right. There's something about the humans in this movie that it comes across as very cold. There's lots of silence uh, in between their lines of dialogue. And I think that is intentional with, you know, with these two guys on the ship to Jupiter. I think it's because Kubrick's trying to get us used to the fact that they're on this months and months long mission where there's really not much to do. And with the, you know, I, I can't remember his name, but the guy who is on the way to the moon to give his briefing on what the next stage of the mission is going to be, he comes across a little more like, you know, cynical and joking about stuff. And I think it's because he's so used to taking that trip to the moon. All of the the characters in this movie really seem to play their part to get the point across about what Kubrick's trying to say about space travel. You know, on the one on the one end, you have like the everyday commercial flight to the moon. On the other, you have two guys in the big void of space who have nothing to talk about because they're on a months long mission to Jupiter. Yeah, I, I was glad you brought up uh, William Sylvester. He, to me, came across as su- not sleazy, but kind of this like charming type of personality. Honestly, he kind of reminded me of like a precursor to a George Clooney type of role. Uh, he, I thought he was really interesting, even though he was only on screen for a little bit of time. But like Jordan said, I, I think the real star of this show is HAL 9000, even though I get the feeling from Kubrick's you know, cinematography that I don't know if he meant for HAL to be such a huge part of the movie. You know, Honestly, from the moment where he's introduced to the time where they shut him down, it, it doesn't feel like he's on screen for a ton of the movie if you look at just overall percent of the movie. And yet, I feel like he's probably the most enduring impact. You know, when you look at popular culture, you see references to him all the time. You know, one of my favorite video games that I've ever played in my life is a series called Portal. And in those games, you have this heartless, you know, AI system putting you through a series of tests that feels very similar to Hal. You know, when you look at even a pop culture movie like WALL-E, you know, made by Pixar, in that movie, they have a million references to 2001 A Space Odyssey, and they are also attacked, in a sense, by a rogue AI who thinks that he knows what's best for them. So, like, Hal seems to be the most enduring performance from this movie. Yeah, it definitely carries a lot of pathos with it. You know, even though he is this monotone sort of robot, the sequence where Dave, you know, goes into the control room and starts removing his memory kind of bit by bit it it is kind of heartbreaking to listen to this this computer slowly waste away and die and i think that might actually be the most human moment in the movie and the irony is that it's coming from this computer good afternoon gentlemen i am a hal 9000 computer i became operational at the H.A.L. plant in Urbana, Illinois, on the 12th of January, 1992. My instructor was Mr. Langley, and he taught me to sing a song. If you'd like to hear it, I can sing it for you. I can hear it now. Sing it for me. It's called Daisy. 
So guys, I want to run something by you real quick, and I, I think I might be in the minority when I say this. I'm in the minority on everything when it comes to 2001, but on this watch through, I think I realized that I really like the first half of this movie a lot better than I like the last half of the movie, which is really interesting because you don't get to the Jupiter mission until almost exactly the halfway point of the film. And so almost everything that people remember from this movie is that sort of middle section where we're on the ship to Jupiter. And yet I thought Kubrick did a much better job setting up the movie and getting us to the moon. And you get the sort of suspense foreboding of them uncovering the monolith on the moon. And then as soon as we get to the spaceship going to Jupiter, I think the movie really starts to kind of grind to a halt. That's where I really started to feel the pace of the movie. Brad, you talked about how unbearably slow it was. And I think that's where it started to catch up with me. I don't know if you guys had to split the movie kind of into first half, last half. Which did you find to be more compelling? Well, I honestly think that the thing I found most interesting about the film is that the first part of the movie, the dawn of man up until the point where they start the moon mission, you know, the, so the whole historical part feels completely unnecessary. And then after he defeats Hal and, you know, goes on the space trip and, you know, and I mean that as a double entendre, <laughs> uh, you know, the film that's in between that from the moon to the Jupiter mission, that feels like it should be one movie on its own. And Absolutely. That, and that opening sequence and the ending sequence just feel like weird things to tack onto the movie. It doesn't make any sense. And I actually, for some reason, I found it more compelling to watch that movie, Brad, the, the second movie, not the movie with the astronauts on the ship, because I like... I've read enough about the interpretations of this movie now, and we're going to get into this in a minute, to understand like what each section is supposed to be saying. And like we've already alluded to, you get the prologue where the apes discover the monolith and it leaps them forward into the next evolutionary sort of eon. And we go to space and it ends with humans getting to the moon and then finding another monolith that leaps them forward to the next eon of space exploration. And then what we get on the trip to Jupiter kind of seems like a complete detour from the point the movie is trying to make, which is watching man evolve, which we come back to at the end of the movie. But it seems like this really weird diversion to go into the story about these two astronauts and Hal. And I've really struggled to understand what purpose Hal serves to this story. It's like this. It, it, it's its own little suspense movie where you have a rogue AI. And I, I've seen a lot of articles and theses where people are trying to link Hal to the movie thematically and, and portray him kind of as a symbol of man's misuse of its tools, linking it back to like what the, the apes did with the bones. But I have to be honest with you, I didn't find that middle section of the movie to have a strong enough connection with the rest of the film to really merit being there, even though that's kind of like the most entertaining part of the movie, if that makes sense. Yeah, the evolutionary leaps don't seem quite the same, unless I guess you consider the AI or like Al's aspect of it to be as sentient as a human. I suppose you could then argue that the the leap that the monolith helps humans leap to is the creation of another being, which had never before been done, which is pretty spectacular. But again, I'm, I'm going to use the word spoiled. 
we talk about AI so much in the 2019, 2020 world that it might just be, it just might not be spectacular enough for us to see how those two things pair with one another in terms of, man, having AI in their mind was going to be similar to apes developing and using tools back, you know, in the prehistory of man. And I just, I just wonder if maybe we miss that contextually because we're, in, we're way past 2001, you know, we're not even, we're not even close to that anymore, really. So I did a little bit of research and Arthur C. Clarke, who is credited as the author of the book 2001, was basically working on the book in tandem with Kubrick while they were writing the screenplay for the movie. So in a way, the book informs the movie, the movie informs the book. It's this really weird dynamic. But in the book, I guess they make it much more explicit that the reason that Hal goes haywire is because Hal understands that he has to lie to the astronauts about the purpose of their mission. And because Hal computers are known for being perfect, he doesn't know how to handle lying to someone. And that sets him off into miscalculating that that antenna was going to go faulty, which eventually leads Hal to a state of fearing for his life when they realize Hal might be going haywire. And that's what leads him to murder. Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Hal's actually a much more sympathetic character in the book. And I think that's one of the weird things with this movie for me is that there's a lot that Kubrick leaves up to interpretation. But then I feel like there are also just big gaps in the movie where we don't understand motivations. And I feel like there are just huge deficiencies in the script from a storytelling standpoint. Yeah, I would agree, Bob. I I think that Kubrick is one of those directors that, you know, like you said earlier, the the plot of this movie is not really there at all. There's not much going on. And that's one reason why I feel like the whole HAL 9000 storyline, I don't know if Kubrick meant to make that a big deal. I, I feel like for him, there was other things going on. But the problem is when you're a director that gives you barely any dialogue and he just gives you shot after shot of nothing happening or very small things happening... It's just hard because how are you supposed to make up a story out of that? And you end up attaching to certain things that I don't know if he meant for you to attach to. Well, I would I would push back on that, Brad, because all of the research that I've done on this movie indicate that like he actually did mean for us to have that attachment. But I think you're still right because he doesn't seem to spend enough time emphasizing that it's important. And I think that's why it came across as like accidental to you. It's in this weird medium of like, it seems important, but we're not really getting a lot of clarification about why it's important. And I think that's one of the big frustrations with this movie for me is I already alluded to the fact that people who are appreciators of this movie really like to think that anyone who doesn't like it is just incapable of grasping what it's supposed to be about. But for me, 
I think that there are just big gaping holes in the movie. And it just has happened to become one of those movies that everyone has decided is super deep and that any deficiency in the movie is actually just a place where the director is leaving it up to our interpretation and you can make of it what you want. And it turns this movie into like a big Rorschach test. And I really hate that because I don't mind ambiguity, but when I think what I'm seeing on screen is actually just flaws in storytelling, that's where I start to get frustrated. You can't just explain away a lot of this as, oh, it's abstract art and you can read into it whatever you want. I actually think that there are just parts of this movie that are deeply, deeply flawed. What makes us, I wonder, though, I I think we all would point to a piece of art that has some level of like what you're saying as ambiguity that we could even title mystery. And I wonder what's even causing fans of this film. What are the, I wonder what they see in it that causes them to allude so much to mystery. They so much can't let it go because it's so special to them and it, it creates so much emotion in them that they're like, no, it has to be mystery or what, you know, like what I would just have to wonder what this film does for them that other things doesn't do. I think that's kind of interesting, I guess. So we talked about this a little bit with uh, our our top five biggest letdowns of the decade, Brad. And I mentioned why The Wolf of Wall Street was one of my biggest letdowns. Martin Scorsese has kind of ascended into like the pantheon of directors who are just never questioned. And I think that with a movie like The Wolf of Wall Street, people like me who thought that it was a legitimately not great movie – are written off as, well, you're just not getting what Scorsese was trying to do. And I see the same thing with Kubrick, where he is such a perfectionist that everything you see on screen is deliberate. And people don't leave open the possibility that, yes, maybe it was deliberate and it also fails at being good. And it's the same thing I see with Scorsese, which is like we've written off the possibility of him ever making a bad movie. And I think that whenever we're talking about human beings making art, you have to leave open the possibility that maybe it is a brilliant, genius filmmaker, and he or she just made a not good movie. And that's kind of where I fall on 2001. Yeah, I mean, it's the idea that da Vinci at some point in his life painted something that wasn't great. You know, Mozart at some point in his life composed something that wasn't perfection. And and we have to be okay with that if we're going to idolize these people. You know, obviously, we spent the first half of this episode talking about a lot of the things we actually liked about this movie. But I think it's okay to recognize that your favorite authors, filmmakers, you know, sports players, whoever, they, they have flaws. They're not always perfect. So with that in mind, I want to get to our final scores, and I want to hear whether or not you guys would recommend this movie. Yeah, Bob, I, coming to the end of this movie, I, I think that if the movie was just what I described earlier about the moon mission turning into the HAL 9000 story, I think I might give this like an 8 out of 10. It's interesting, it's fun, it's suspenseful. But when you tack on the dawn of man and beyond Jupiter, if you will— this movie just struggles. Like you said, Bob, it, it gives it a mixed story. I don't know exactly what Kubrick is trying to tell us or what message he is trying to send. I, I'm going to give this movie a 6 out of 10. I, I think it's well made. I think it's interesting. I think he's got a lot going for him. But the storytelling is flawed and it, it struggles to tell a cohesive story. And when you are going to be this experimental and art housey, if you will... I think you need to wrap the story up much better than Kubrick does. 
Yeah, I know that there are people in my life that I admire who can watch movies like this and think about them contextually and can say, man, like I can really imagine myself in 1968 and this is pretty astounding. Uh, I'm not typically one of those people. I'll say that I liked it a lot more than I expected to, even with its reputation and the things that I knew about it. Um, I'd really like to give it around like a five out of 10. There are people that I would suggest watch this movie because of their love for movies or love for this kind of movie. But I just think movie making has come so far since that time and I can appreciate it for what it did. Um, But there are movies that I just like a lot more. I'm also going to give this movie a six out of 10. And it's one of those movies that I, I kind of avoid talking about because a lot of people, especially people that would call themselves, quote unquote, cinephiles, hold this movie up kind of like alongside Citizen Kane as potentially the greatest film of all time. And when you say you don't like 2001, you automatically disqualify yourself from conversations with those people. But I think the the point of this podcast, whether we're talking about whiskey or movies, is you you can't let yourself be swayed. I think that's why we talk about the value score on our whiskeys. That's why we give movie scores at the end of this episode, because this is a movie that has such a reputation that I feel like people can get bullied into saying they appreciate it, even if they don't. I appreciate what this movie did for cinema. You know, we talked about all the technical brilliance of it. Kubrick is obviously a genius and there's genius elements to this movie. It just doesn't work for me and it never has. And it leaves me cold every time I see it. So for me, it's only a six out of ten. Do I recommend it? Yes, I do, because I'm clearly in the minority. I think people get something out of this movie that just has it's never given to me. But it's essential viewing for any lover of movies, of cinema, because of its reputation. And who knows? You may watch this and come out with a completely different opinion than Brad or I have. Brad, would you recommend this movie? I think I'd be along the same vein as Jordan. If you would consider yourself a cinephile, a lover of movies, that you just are interested in the history of cinema, like, yes, go watch this movie. It changed the way things were done. But if you're just the average moviegoer who enjoys, you know, whatever movie comes out, I I, I might say take a pass on it. It's not necessarily the greatest thing, you know, since sliced bread. Well, there you have it. Our scores on 2001 A Space Odyssey. But we want to know what you think. So please get on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Whiskey with an E. Or you can give us a call. If you want to leave us a voicemail telling us what you think about 2001 A Space Odyssey, our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, number is 216-800-5923. Next week, we'll be back talking about Sofia Coppola's masterpiece, Lost in Translation. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And I'm Jordan McCain. We'll see you next time.